Hi, and welcome to the Journey to a Dream podcast, where we talk to riders about what it takes to realise their ambition of racing here on the Isle of Man. Now, something slightly different today, we're going to hear from someone who's been there and done that. And while his story took a rather unexpected turn, he is undoubtedly one of the most inspirational people I've ever interviewed. My name is Mike Booth. Can you remember the first time you ever sat on a bike? No, no, because I was about probably three, four years old. I can't remember not being able to ride a bike. It's just something I've always been able to do because I learnt so early. I remember my um, my uncle said to me one day, wobbling around, and I kept putting my feet down and couldn't really do it properly. And he said, if you can't ride that bike without putting your feet down by the time you're four years old, your willy will fall off. We assume that happened. Obviously, you were able to ride around. <laughs> yeah, I thought you meant we assumed the willy fell off. No, I've still got it. Still got it. Still there. I think growing up, racing motocross because i loved it i always wanted it to be i wanted it to be my job i wanted to be a professional motocross racer but i guess in the same way that like any you know kids that play football they want to be professional footballers kids that sing want to be professional singers don't they it was kind of i never knew whether it was a dream or like a a realistic thing um but my mum and dad said uh you've got to you've got to work out at school anyway because it might not happen um so yeah, it was always kind of like I want I want to race bikes forever, but I don't know if I'll be able to. So, um, and it, it was probably probably when I got a little bit older that that when I started uh, racing bikes on on tarmac that I kind of thought maybe like if I if I get really good at it I can I can do it for a living. But I never I never really thought that I never really thought I was good enough to be like a professional racer. Um, but I just kept trying and trying and. Um, Never, never really, never really got to the point where I was a professional racer. But I got to a point where I was racing in professional events. So I kind of, I sometimes feel like I half got there. Um, but yeah, I was never, um, never, never a pro, which is a shame. Dad raced bikes. My granddad raced bikes. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was kind of, I guess it was inevitable really that 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 would be the thing that I did. So I remember when I was young, my uh, my dad was really good at motocross, and I used to watch him ride and think, oh, one day I want to be that fast. Um, and I reckon I'm faster than him now, uh, but he is about 60, so... <laughs> Did you grow up with, like, motorbike parts in the kitchen? Was yeah. it that sort of household? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad used to, like, clean all the um, engine parts in the dishwasher because he said it needed to be really hot to, like, wash them properly and he, he couldn't... The kettle wouldn't get, get it hot enough, so when he poured the kettle water of it, so he put... Yeah, that was, that was all our dishwasher got used for, really, <laughs> just washing engine parts. Your mum was OK with that, was she? Uh, no, she wasn't, so they got divorced <laughs> when I was about five years old. So no, she didn't like that. It's really interesting that you think you could class yourself a part way a, a professional racer. Uh, what does professional racer, I suppose, then look like to you? Think from other people's point of view, they would see you as that, given what you've done. Yeah, maybe. Like I think for me, a professional racer is someone who is paid a, a full time sort of salary wage to to race bikes, and that's their job. They don't have to get up on Monday and go to work, whatever that whatever that job may be. Um, I feel like I got to a point where. I could race bikes and if I had a good event maybe maybe it would be like cost neutral because we'd get some sponsors in and the TT was always like reasonably good with prize money so if I had a good TT we could maybe do it without it costing loads of money um but I never I never made money from it um so it was kind of yeah I never really considered myself a professional but then like I said before I think the the TT is a professional event and I raced a lot of years in British Superbikes or British Super Stock which was like 
fairly professional a race at the Le Mans 24 hour which is like a massive event so I felt like I, I raced at professional events I was a professional level racer but I was never actually professional myself. So to get to those professional level events when you talk a little bit about sponsorship and, and financing it how was that side of things for you? Uh, like for most people difficult because mm-hmm. racing bikes is just phenomenally expensive you know you you wherever you know a set of tires for example is like three four hundred quid now and and they might last one session um the fuel that the bikes go through the fuel putting fuel having a truck to to take you you there the infrastructure and um entry fees for stuff it's it's massive amounts of money so it's hard work and i spent a lot of years working really hard to earn enough money to be able to do it my dad spent a lot of years working really hard to earn enough money so that i could do it um he put he put massive amounts of money into me the the older i got and the better i got i got better at finding sponsors and that made it easier um and how does that side of it work i mean do they just notice you at a particular event do you just go around you bash phone bash i mean how do you how do you find them it's kind of works in all different ways really like some sometimes it's just um you know a, a mate in the village who's who's done all right uh, has got a business and wants to put his business on the side of your bike so I'll give you a few hundred quid and that'll pay for some fuel or it, or it might be you know uh, one of my sponsors they just he, he, he owns a, a bar in Hull called um, Surf Bar and he bought a, he bought a bike covered it in his like Surf Bar logos and said here this is my kind of sponsorship contribution you ride that bike which was great other sponsors aren't that bothered about having the na- name on the bike they just want to come and be part of it so they'll give you some money to be part of it and it, there's no kind of one hard and fast rule really um, but I, a lot of sponsors when, when you get to the bigger teams a lot of the sponsors are kind of more corporate so they they they, they want to be able to bring clients along to the events and, and you know they want the riders to make a bit of a fuss of them um, but that's kind of bigger teams with big hospitality and stuff we like we I was I was never in a team that was big enough to be able to kind of do that. So, but yeah, like there's a million ones where you can make sponsorship work. And I suppose there is an element. There's a reciprocal arrangement there, isn't there? So you get money, and in return, you have to do whatever it is they demand. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and hopefully that's something that something that you're able or willing to do. But yeah, whether that's whether that's promoting the business, you know, make making a fuss out of the clients or. You know, it's usually a promotion thing. Um, I mean, I know some sponsors kind of just like the idea of being involved in it, but when you get to the higher end stuff, when you're getting more money and it's when it's proper businesses giving you like sensible amounts of cash, they uh, they need to see some sort of return for it because it's a business, isn't it? You know. So then you've done the British Superbikes, British Superstock. At what point did you think, right, Ironman TT? That's what I'm going to do. I went. To okay, well, I came here in 2011, I think it was, with a mate, just for like had a had a we had a few weeks off work. So in fact, I think I was I think I just finished university, so like I had like a summer holidays. So me and my friend Johnny said, let's go to watch the TT because we had some mates over here that were racing. So we thought we're going to watch the TT, have a few beers, just enjoy it, a little holiday. And then um, I, yeah, the first bikes that I saw, I was like, oh man, I've got to do this. I have to, I have to do this, but at the time, uh, I would have been about twenty twenty one, so I was crashing a lot. You know, I was I was reasonably quick and having decent results when I finished, but I used to crash all the time. So um, uh, it it was kind of explained to me by a few people that it's not a good idea that you go and race at the TT not yet anyway, because like you know it's uh, it's not a great place to crash. 
around here so I kind of waited a few years and got I didn't really get any faster but I got better I got I became a better rider because I stopped crashing so it was when I was 25 that I kind of decided that now I feel like I'm ready to do it and and I spoke to my dad who has always been a big part of me going racing and he, he said yeah I reckon like let's do it let's see if we can make it happen so so we did I spoke to a kind of bunch of teams that I knew were thinking about coming over and there was a guy who said he was interested in coming over with a newcomer so I spoke to him uh, and yeah the rest is kind of history really. And in terms of what you have to do in terms of racing fixtures almost because I, I think they talk about getting signatures and yeah. things like that can you just explain that side of it? So so you have to have you have to have a mountain course license to to race at the TT and to have a mountain course license there's there's I can't remember the exact details but I think you need to do six different race meetings or at least six different race meetings in the 12 months leading up to the TT. I think they've got to be on at least three different circuits and two of them have got to be within six months of the TT. So there's kind of a few hoops that you've got to jump through in that in that regard. But then it's not just a case of do six meetings and then come and do the TT. Do you know, it's to even think about starting that process, you, you kind of need to be, a, particularly the TT, I know the Manx is a... Uh, uh, the pace is a little bit slow and it's a different kind of event but for the TT it's um, you've got to be like reasonably proficient shall we say and quite experienced and did you never think about the Manx first was that not an option for you I spoke to a few people and uh, about it and I just I felt like if they would let me go to the TT first I would and and I'm glad I did because I I think you get more help with um, you know like Milky Spent I was with me in the car doing laps. So did Johnny Barton, and I just felt like the, there was a there was a better system in place to kind of help newcomers at the TT. So it, yeah, it was it was for me. It was if if I could get an injury at the TT, yeah, that's the way I'd do it. So and I'm glad I did. So you did what you needed to do, um, and then you, you talk about going around with uh, Milky and John Barton, and, and you see this quite often now on some of the television coverage, and it's literally, I love how animated Milky gets, particularly even when he's going around at 30 miles an hour in his car. You know, his drive and enthusiasm for this event is just hugely infectious, and I'm guessing from your point of view, it just kind of takes it to that next level. Yeah, it does, yeah. Um, like, you spend time, when you're in the car with Milky, you just... You, you you're living it with him it's amazing like like you said he's got so much so much enthusiasm and he's the whole time he's got a big smile on his face and that's infectious and it makes you even more excited to do it because uh, you can see how much he loves it i remember i remember think you know, people would say to me god you're watching more onboard videos you're going over again to do laps and i was like it must be a bit of a pain spending all that time trying to learn it but for me it wasn't a pain i loved it I love doing like watching the laps i loved spending time over here learning it and studying it and and thinking about it and you know, the sort of six months leading up to my first ET, I would probably, almost every night before I went to bed, uh, I would just lay there with my eyes shut and just, like, you know, do a lap in my head. Um, so, but I loved it. So you arrive, 2016, you've done all this preparation, you're literally living and breathing it in your head. Were you absolutely ready for it? Um, at the time, I thought I was ready. I thought I was totally ready, but now I look back I probably wasn't I hadn't I'd, I'd done a lot of riding but I hadn't done anywhere near enough riding on the bikes that I, that was coming over here here on um, I was riding a Kawasaki ZX10 and we brought a, a BMW S1000RR and a CBR600 uh, the CBR600 wasn't so bad because I'd raced one a few years ago and I kind of knew the bike and they're a bit slower and easy to ride anyway but the 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 BMW 
was faster than anything I'd ever ridden. Um, the, the electronics were a lot different, and so whilst I thought I was ready, I could have been, I could have been a lot more prepared. I mean, I didn't. I knew. I knew. I feel like I knew my way around as well as anyone could, but the, the other bits were maybe not as well prepared as I thought. But it's, I mean, it still went really well. Um, we had. Yeah, we had a, a good week, and the weather was really nice in 2016, like like we've had this time. So it's um, the weather's always nice here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep telling yourself <laughs> that. <laughs> so uh, you arrive and you're you're in that paddock atmosphere. I suppose there's not a great deal of time to sort of get your head together before the first qualifying starts. How well do you remember sitting on the start line for the first time? Uh, yeah, really well, uh, and I can actually I remember I was the first person behind milky quail on the so they, so they do the speed control laps um f- first before any laps before anyone else does anything or they did that year anyway i'm not sure if it's the same now um so i remember sitting sitting there and i remember thinking i'm going to be the first competitor to set off in the alaman tt 2016 like you know behind milky but milky wasn't racing so i felt like i'm opening the show it's me i'm like the first person to go around uh, so i remember that that was pretty cool uh, and then when Milky set off, I, I just remember thinking, Jesus Christ, like I, I can't keep up with him. And uh, so I set off. I set off directly behind Milky. And by the end of the lap, like there was four of the other newcomers. They'd all passed me, and like I was really struggling to keep up. And I remember thinking, um, Oh God, this might I might have bitten off more than I can chew here. And I remember thinking, Why did like what a waste of time spend like tr- learning it all and spending all that time coming over and doing like going around in the car it's totally different when you're on it when you've got both sides of the roads it's totally different wasted my time i don't know if i can do it so i said to the lads that i'd come over with i said look this uh, this might be too fast for me and they said well don't make a decision now just, just go and do another lap by yourself forget about milky forget about anyone else just go at your own pace nice and slow just have a roll around see how you feel so i did and and that lap was easier uh, because I because I didn't feel like I needed to keep up with anyone. It was probably just as fast, but at my own pace. And then I thought, oh, this is actually okay. So I did another lap, and then all of a sudden, I fell in love with it. And by like lap four, it was the best thing I'd ever done in my life. And and that's when I started understanding why it was so important to spend so much time learning it. Because by the time I'd got sort of up to speed, kind of like hundred mile an hour laps plus, that's when you need to always know what's next. It's not so much knowing what gear you need to be in or knowing what what way braking markers need to be because they change when you go in different speeds. But always knowing what comes next and knowing if it's a, a, a double apex double apex left that's fourth gear or a, or a you know first gear right under because obviously if you get it wrong it's gonna hurt. So and you can you can't commit unless you fully know what's next. So that's that's why it's re- it was really important to. Um, to have learned it so well but I just I I didn't yeah the first couple of laps were just it, it blew my mind really and and the, the straights were another thing that I'd there, there was a few corners on the straights that to be fair that was the one thing that I didn't learn well enough like when you go up on the mountain mile it's pretty it's fairly straight for about a mile and you're flat out but there are little kinks and I never really bothered I knew the kinks were there but I didn't learn the kinks well enough because I thought, oh well, that's not a problem. That's just flat out. But actually, when you're going under an 80 mile an hour, it becomes a problem. And you can do it flat out, but you've got to be just in the right place on the road, and you've got to turn the bike just at the right time. And um, 
so yeah it was a it was a probably the, the that first night race well qualifying here was probably the biggest learning curve of my whole racing career so yeah it was a it was it was frightening to be honest did you have your dad over with you yeah 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 he, he came over yeah I, since i've been racing road bikes i can't think of any time that i've raced anything with my dad not there um so yeah he's always been he's always been part of it really I wonder what it was like for him waiting for you to come back that first time. Yeah, I think, do you know what, coming coming here this year and not racing has made me realise a little bit more what that's like for the people. I think it's torture for 17, 18 minutes at a time, isn't it? Um, so I think it's it's way easier. That side of it is way easier when you're racing because you do, you're concentrating on what you're doing. You're not worrying about, not worrying about where, you know, anything really apart from what's coming next whereas yeah they, them guys are just stood around kind of kicking the heels for 20 minutes at a time not really knowing you know if the if the bike's broken down or the or the or you've had a crash or something's gone wrong or if you don't come round, then then it's kind of like a proper panic then isn't it you know so i used to always take my phone with me i slot my phone in my leathers um so just in case i did break down or stopped anywhere i could ring them straight away and say look just let you know i'm all right but steering dampers broken or you know so it's kind of no stress one of the most difficult things about coming racing and being part of a race team that that waiting because you, and you, you're completely helpless out like you know you've done all you've done as the team whether it's you know my dad or the the guys coming to help or even the big teams once you set your rider off there's nothing you can do at all I kind of wouldn't really like to be in that position so we get to race week in 2016 then and um and it's fair to so say it went okay didn't it it went all right, yeah. We did. We started five races, and I finished all five races. That was kind of, for me, if, if I could... I wasn't really interested in where I finished. It's nice to have a good finish, but I wasn't really interested in that. I just wanted to do as many laps as I possibly could, and to start five races and finish five races, I thought that was like... that. That was I was over the moon. Um, and did 122 and a half mile an hour lap, I think, something like that, which isn't like... Incredible. I know the new, a lot of the newcomers are going way faster than that, but I was really happy with that. Um, I knew there was loads in reserve, and I never had a, I never had any scary moments. I never got, I never got lost. You know, so a few people said to me, "Oh, you know, just go steady because eventually you'll, you know, you, you at some point you'll forget where you are and you'll forget what's coming next." And I never forgot what was coming next. So I felt like quite proud of myself for that. Um, and I was fastest newcomer that year, so they gave me a big trophy, and that was quite cool. Um, they didn't kill let me keep it though, which was a shame. Was there any question about whether or not you were going to come back in twenty seventeen? Uh, no, I was. I, well, the 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 as soon as the TT finished, we we then started sorting twenty seventeen out, and uh, it was as far as I was concerned, it was definitely going to happen. Unfortunately, um, the the sponsor pulled out like literally the week before. So, 20- did you find out why that was? Is it um, because I think he just he'd bitten off more than he could chew, and and didn't really let us know until uh, the last minute, which is really difficult because I actually had a bike at home that I could have could have got ready if I'd have known, and we, I could have made something happen. But it was kind of like, oh no, we're definitely on, we're definitely on, we're definitely on, and then all of a sudden we weren't. So it, that yeah, that was a bit of a kick in the teeth. Um, I came over anyway because the thing is, I'd booked two weeks off work. My ferry was booked on the on the lorry. I'd done I'd done all my side of it. I'd got my license. I'd done all that stuff, um, and and I, so I thought, right, I'm just going to go over. 
And I spent a couple of the, the first two or three nights in practice week chatting to a few teams and saying, "Look, is there any chance of?" Um, but they had no one either no one wanted me or they wanted me to like give them like six grand or something, which I did, just couldn't pull out of my pocket. So um, yes, yeah, so a seventeen. I just watched, yeah, sat on the hedges and watched and drank beer. Which yeah, that hurt a little bit. But um, it's it, it, I'm not the first person to have. Um, to have been kind of left in the lurch at the last minute and I'm, I know I'm not going to be last night in this game anyway it kind of it does seem to happen quite a lot I mean you talk to people who literally say that they spend their mortgage payments on parts for the bike just to get here yeah. and that's that seems to be very real for those privateers who just have this almost as their sole focus yeah 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 it's um and I know I know families that have remortgaged houses to pay for race bikes and stuff and it's frightening, really. I mean, I, I never kind of... Uh, it, it never got to that point with me, but it, it, there was a lot of... Um, a lot of years where pretty much everything I would earn or, or and most of what my dad would earn, and it was kind of... We, we kind of crippled ourselves a little bit. Uh, we never we never got into, like, debt or anything because of it, but um, it made... It made... Uh, sometimes made... Uh, putting nice food. We never struggled to put food on the table, but it wasn't always. It wasn't all. We weren't having caviar and stuff like that. A lot of beans on toast. Yeah, there's a lot of beans on toast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So after you went through that monumental disappointment in 2017, how difficult was it to put any faith, I suppose, in the fact that you were actually going to be able to come back at all? Well, um, so after after that happened, uh, we decided, me and my dad, we said, look, we can we can build a race bike. I had the makings of a race bike in the shed anyway. So and said, in the dishwasher. In the dishwasher, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we said, like, empty the dishwasher, we'll build a bike. <laughs> um, so we just said we'll do it ourselves because we got them at home that we can fit the bike in the back. We had a, uh, at that point, we'd been racing in British Superstock ourselves, like just me and my dad running our own little team with some help. So we said, we can do it. We can do it ourselves. We know how the TT works now. I know where it goes. We can build a bike. It won't be the most competitive bike, but it'll get us round. And hopefully if we can turn up and, and put some, some sort of effort in, it might kind of open some doors for the following year. So uh, that's what we did. We, we we put my old Superstock bike back together that was, by this point, on its last legs, really. Um, but, yeah, we, we brought the old girl, and uh, she, she's for 2018... Um, yeah, just just plodded round on that thing, and it it won't like I say it won't the fastest thing, but I think that year managed nineteenth in the senior, um, and and I think I, I looked at all the other entries, and there was a, it was the oldest bike by about five years out of anything in the top twenty, so um, I thought that was I thought it was a reasonable result, um, and we came and I, f- I think I finished four races out of five, which you know on a on a on a, on a pair of old bikes I didn't think it was bad so and it just kind of proved to me and my dad that we can do we don't need to kind of rely on anyone else we can do it ourselves we did have help with sponsors do you know it wasn't that it wasn't a case of um we was paying for everything ourselves we put a lot of my own money in but we would we had had some sponsors that helped and put bits in and um so so for the following year we kind of we built on that really so 2019 um we sold that bike at the end of the year and bought a newer bike, not a brand new bike, because we just couldn't afford one. But bought a newer bike, and 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 it was a lot more modern, and it was a lot faster. And um, off the back of having a reasonable result in twenty eighteen, we got some bit more help for twenty nineteen. Um, and then yeah, just did the same thing. Me and my dad 
couple of mates. Udless would come and do the fuel for me. My mate Oatsy would come and do the visor change in pit lane. So it was just like me, me, my dad, and a couple of mates um, going racing for a couple of weeks. It was great. It worked really, really well. And that that year, I was fourteenth in the senior, so I felt like I was kind of just moving up slowly. And um, yeah, I, I felt like twenty twenty. 20 it would have been would have been a good year and that like that I thought right we'll take that bike back the bike's still fast enough there's more to go in me I'm still not still not pushing as hard as I you know I've still got plenty in reserve so uh, yeah 2020 was kind of the year that I thought right let's see if we can let's see if we can get in a top 10 and off the back of that get a proper ride on a proper bike and um, but obviously 2020 happened and everyone got COVID and um, yeah the TT didn't happen so we missed a couple of years which was a bit of a bit of a pain because I just felt like I was kind of starting to get somewhere but that's it circumstances totally beyond anyone's control and I suppose so much had already gone into making TT 2020 possible for you at that point as well yeah yeah loads um so it was a real it was a real kind of like just takes the wind out of your sails um because at this point I'd raced since at the TT since 2016 but I'd missed 17 18 and 19 but like I felt like even though I've been racing since 2016 I've already missed one year and then I missed two years for Covid so I was like I should I should have had like five six TTs under my belt now but I've only had three so it kind of slow. I've just felt like it slowed my kind of progression down and slowed my my, my bike racing career down a little bit uh, but then it's the same for everyone isn't it you know the TT was cancelled for everyone so it's not as though it's not as though everyone was kind of getting a, a jump on me but I just like, like I'm not getting any younger you know and I felt like to, to maintain the pace that I had in 17 and 18 I was doing quite a bit of racing I slowed down quite a lot and became more difficult to do because of Covid and everything so like when we came back I wasn't the same rider as I was two years ago three years ago just because I everything had slowed down a little bit and life circumstances changed a bit and um, so I, I just felt like that that run that I was having just stopped really and obviously we know now 2022 was a memorable yeah. racing year for you for for all the wrong reasons really but in uh, before that had happened do you remember much of the the first part of qualifying week yeah. and how things were going yeah I, it was um it was going all right I, I, I was actually a little bit ill i had laryngitis or, or tonsillitis or something which didn't help it made things a little bit more difficult because I was just a bit, I was just tired. Um, but I mean, it was it was going well. I was on the same bike that I'd rode three years ago. So by now, by this point, it was quite an old bike again. But I knew it was still competitive, and I knew it was still, you know, there was there was more in me. It wasn't the bike that was slowing me down. It was me at that point. So I knew, like, it would be fine. Uh, yeah, and it was it was going well. I was just slowly getting quicker each night, um, and then it was the on the last night of practice, so the Friday. Friday evening practice did a couple of laps on the 600 uh, and they, they went fairly well and I thought about going and doing a couple on the big bike but I thought you know what I'm, I've am i got this it was a super bike race the next day so I thought I don't want to wear myself out on the super bike or the super stock bike because I've got a six lap race to do tomorrow I'm already a little bit ill I'm going to leave that one there because it, it'll wear me out so I thought, I'd do it, but but I'm I'm feeling good and I want to keep doing the lap. So I went out on the 600, did one good lap, and then I was on another lap, which was the best lap I'd ever done on a 600. Uh, or it, it was up until Joey's, I think. Like every sector, I was like five, six, seven seconds faster. 
but yeah, then I got to Joey's, which is about 26 miles on the course, just after the gooseneck, when you start heading up the mountain, and um, I've crashed the bike. Now, I can't actually remember the crash, but I've spoke to marshals, and I've spoke to some medics, and I've spoke to people who, who rode through the crash afterwards, and kind of pictured what I think happened. So I think what's gone on is evening practice, the last lap of evening practice. You're like eight o'clock at night, you know, so it's starting to get a little bit cool. So I think maybe my front tyre's just cooled off a touch and I've tipped into Joey's, lost the front, and I think the bike has slid into the rector cell in front of me. You know, the big the big soft bales. It's hit them bales, pushed them out of the way, and then I've gone in behind it, but straight into the wall because the bike's pushed the bales out of the way and then kind of bounced me and the bike up the road and there was just like stuff everywhere. The bike was all in bits and pieces. I was laying laying down face down with my legs all twisted and, and bent out of shape um, and there was like stuff everywhere. So the marshals had to had to move me really quick because you come through there really fast and it was they couldn't slow the riders down enough. So um, yeah, it was a it was a it was a big old big old mess. I think is it any point now i mean obviously this is a probably a stupid question but thinking about the fact you hadn't felt great anyway um you'd been doing pretty well considering where you think god i just wish i hadn't gone out for that last lap i thought about that loads and part of me thinks yeah i wish i didn't do that last lap but then that was to not do that lap wasn't who i was i was always going to do that someone gives me a bike and any course but you know any any someone gives me a bike in any track i'm going to go ride it but if there's a bike there and the tt course is ready for open for me to go and rip round um i just i would have had to have been really ill to say no and i wasn't that ill um and yeah to regret i feel like to regret doing that lap would be to regret who i was and i, I don't think you can do that can you i don't think you can like it's obviously we're talking with hindsight um so yeah, no, there's there's no no real regrets. Like, it's easy to say I wish I didn't go and do that lap, but um, I did, so... How long was it before your dad and all the people who were with you, how long was it before they found out what had happened? Uh, I'm not really sure, because I, I think it was, you know, reasonably quick, because I think the, the TT organisers are quite good at, you know, letting people know on the ground what's going on. Uh, but, like like I say, I don't really know, because I was otherwise engaged. They gave me this, this like, um, like a vape pen, you know, like when you're vaping. They gave me one of them, apparently, I can't remember, but they're for, it's like a, what 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 is it? And, an, 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 like an anaesthetist, not an anaesthetist, and a bit of an anaesthetic, that's the word, isn't it? Yeah, they gave me this thing, and it was a bit of, like, an anaesthetic, so that was, like, kind of, like, spacing me out a little bit and taking some of the pain away. Um, so I, yeah, I can't really remember what was going on, but I know they put me on a helicopter, and I guess by the time they've picked me up and put me on the helicopter, the organisers know exactly what happened. They would have been, they would have found um, my dad, Udless, who was my fuel man, and then uh, Oatsy, and my girlfriend had just got there as well. So Kay just arrived, um, literally between. So I'd done two laps on the six hundred. She arrived, said hello to her, and then went to do the next two laps, and then all hell broke loose. So. They flew me in a helicopter to Nobles and I was in like a little triage room where they were putting like cannulas and catheters and straps and all sorts of stuff on me. Um, and whilst I was in this room, you know, you're strapped to the stretcher sort of thing. And whilst I was in this room, my, my dad and girlfriend came in because they'd obviously been to, brought to Nobles and they came to see me and 
I, like was able to chat to them for five minutes. So I can remember that. Um, and then uh, yeah, then they put me in a hospital. Uh, put me in a another aeroplane. So they'd flown me to Nobles in a chopper, and then they ambulanced me to the airport. Put me in a little aeroplane. Flew me over to. John Lennon Airport, I think, and then put me in another ambulance to, to take me to um, Aintree Hospital in Liverpool. So I had a bit of a journey. And then the next day, my girlfriend kind of followed me out. Uh, so she was with me in hospital. Um, and then I spent the next two weeks, I think. I think it was, I think we worked out that in, in two weeks or in the space of 14 days, I was in theatre 11 times. So I was literally like in and out, like sometimes fourteen-hour operations, but because because I'd done so much damage to my legs, so I'd broken my tib and fib both sides, both femurs. Um, I'd done a couple of vertebrae, a couple of couple of ribs, punctured a not. I think I'd I'd like torn a lung, not like kind of like properly punctured it. Um, there was and there was there was this other thing that we were, they were really worried about. There was like like an air. There was like some air in my blood. And they were sort of said if you like you've got like an airlock. If you get an airlock in your heart, then you like have a problem. But that can't, that must have like disappeared because no one ever, no one ever, no one's ever like pulled me up on that. So, but yeah, like yeah, my legs were in a, in a right mess. So after I think four or five attempts to save my uh, right leg, it was just too bad, and I I got I got compartment syndrome, which is where it, it swells up so much that it like basically squashes all the blood blood vessels and and veins and stuff so my foot for the space for like two days or something wasn't getting any um wasn't getting any fresh oxygenated blood and it just died so once my foot was dead they were like well we can't really do anything so they chopped it off that's that's uh, um like i'm not a doctor just to let everyone know that's kind of layman's terms so if there's any doctors listening i've got that wildly wrong i, I do apologize but that's kind of that's kind of how it's explained to me when i was off my nut on drugs so so they followed months in hospital obviously the physical side of it you've been really open about and you know there was a lot going on there what about the emotional and, and the mental side of your recovery Did, was that ever anything that you considered or were you just because you strike me as somebody who's just like well you know that's happened how do I deal with it okay let's move on but I think it's fair to say that wouldn't be true for everybody, would it? So I just wonder where where did that strength, I suppose, come from? Yeah, um, I think the I think the strength came from the support that I got. Like there was there was so many people. Do you know my, my girlfriend was like there for me, like pretty much the whole time. The only time she couldn't be there for me was when so we were, so we were moving house just after the TT. So it all went a bit mad. So so I, the plan was I was supposed to move out all the stuff out of my house. She had a flat and we were moving in together up in Scotland. But um, I was obviously unable to do anything. So she was doing all that as well as trying to be with me whenever she possibly could. And I just wanted like her next to me to hold my hand the whole time. And I can remember it feels like she was there every day. But I know she wasn't because... I know she had all this other stuff to do. So And like the support I got from... So I, I was working for... Um, a website and YouTube channel that that had like quite a big following and the, the support that we got from all the kind of all the 44 teeth community were amazing I was getting so many messages all the time so it's it kind of I felt like it was it's hard to how, how can I explain it it's, when you've got so many people been offering you so much help and giving you so much love like I couldn't I couldn't not smile you know I was reading messages and just 
I might have been laid in bed with like one leg off and like bits sticking out of me everywhere, but I just felt like there were so many people behind me. I, I couldn't not. I was always going to get through anything because there's so many people helping me. Um, and also, I think you know, people have asked me about like the men- mental side of things and mental health and stuff. And I think because I feel like I, it was a big crash at a really fast corner, and it could have easily been worse. Like if I'd have gone into that wall head first, that would have been it. But I've gone in legs first, and it smashed my legs up. But it's only smashed my legs up, so. And I've still got one, you know. It, I could have easily have lost both. Um, I could have easily been dead. So, whilst I'm a, I've got a prosthetic leg now. I still feel like I've got away with it. So, it's like a, you know, I feel like it's like a bonus, a bonus that I'm here. So yeah, I, I, the mental side of it's, I'm okay. I, I do wonder though when I'm a little bit older. And, and things start getting more difficult more quickly. You know, when you get old, things become hard anyway, don't they? And it's more difficult to stay fit. At the minute, I'm getting fitter the whole time because I'm doing loads of physio and everything's getting better. So when everything's getting better, it's easy to be positive. I don't know if when I get older and things stop getting better, I'll start going the other way. Maybe that's maybe that's when I start struggling. I don't know. I'm hoping that I'm going to be all right, but... Um, but yeah, up to now, I've I've been okay. And at no point was a part of you that's thought the TT's to blame for this. No, no, no. The, the, <laughs> I got it was my decision to get on the bike. It, it is a dangerous sport. Like we know it's a dangerous sport. Everyone knows it's dangerous before you even think about racing here. So it's um, they they don't they don't force anyone to do it. You know, they, 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 it's there. It's there for you to do if you're capable. If you, everyone thinks you're capable of doing it, but no one, no one forces you down that road or forces you onto the bike. Most people, most of my friends and family didn't actually want me to do it, um, but I wanted to do it, and I was the one that made it happen and got on the bike. And I, I, I was the one that crashed. You know, it wasn't a. You know, it was no one else's fault. Um, so yeah, there's. There's nobody to blame but myself. If it was possible and the TT was happening tomorrow and somebody said, right, we've got a bike there for you, you can do it, would you? No, because my girlfriend would kill me. Um, to, to be honest, I'm, I feel like I'm, I've done it now. I'm, I, I'm, uh, that's a part of my life that I loved, but there's other stuff I want to do now. And to be honest with you, I, I think I could still do it if I wanted to. It, like I can still ride a bike with the prosthetic leg and a lot of people do race and ride bikes with prosthetics and stuff um so that's not it's not the the leg that's stopping me it's the fact that um i don't want to put my i don't want to put my family through that i don't want to put my girlfriend through that um who's soon to be my wife the trauma that my family and Kay, my fiance went through after the crash was in a lot of respects worse than my trauma because i just I didn't have to do anything. All I just to do is lay there and let them give me drugs. Yeah, it was. I was in pain, and there was a bit of hard work doing the physio and stuff. But I, I didn't have to run around, kind of like still living life, looking after me. And so I think in a lot of ways it was worse for them. So I, yeah, I don't want to put them through that anymore. Have you promised not to wash any bike parts in the dishwasher? Um, no, I haven't promised. No, I haven't promised. But I, 
but I'd probably do it when she was out for the day because <laughs> I don't know how, how it would go down. The whole point of this podcast series is really talking about people who have a dream and that dream is to come and race on roads in the Isle of Man, whether that's the Manx Grand Prix or the TT. If there's somebody listening who maybe for them it's just an inkling at the moment, just that thing that seems so far off and maybe not quite possible, what would you say to them? Um, I think whatever whatever your dream is, whether it's racing at the TT, been a famous singer, been an actor, been a captain of a yacht. Are you just reeling off all your oh, ambitions yeah, yeah, here? Yeah. <laughs> whatever, you, whatever your dream is, I always think you just always be ambitious and do what you can to make it happen. Even if them dreams are a little bit far-fetched. You know, my dream wasn't just to race at the TT. My dream was to win at the TT. So, you know, in, in, in one respect, I haven't really achieved my ambition. I haven't achieved what I wanted to do, but I've still... You might not get all the way, but you get I feel like I've done quite well. I got 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 quite far. I managed to race at the TT, and even that itself, just racing there without winning, just racing there, that's something that people give an arm and a leg to do, and I, it only cost me a leg, so I got it half price. But no, always you've got to aim high, aim high. You might you might not get there, but you'll enjoy the the journey. Do you know? I want to I want to be a MotoGP champion, and and I tried to be a MotoGP champion. I, all I got was as far as racing in the British Championship. My ambition wasn't to race in British. I loved it; it was amazing. But I wanted to go further. But you, you'll get as far as you get, and you'll you'll probably have a, have an amazing time. But if you don't have any aims, what are you living for? Do you know? If you're just going day to day without kind of hoping to at least achieve something, yeah, it must be boring living that type of life. Mike Booth, who I think it's fair to say could teach us all a thing or two about acceptance and perseverance. If you'd like to tell your story, I would love to hear from you. BethSB at manxradio.com is the email address. You can find that link on the Journey to a Dream podcast page. And so until next time, bye-bye.